I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed are those who make the Lord their trust, who do not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and to tell your deeds, they would be many to declare. The Old Testament reading is from Jeremiah 31, verse 3. In your Pew Bibles, page 728. The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with everlasting love, and I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Good morning. I want to say just briefly that I'm glad to be back here with you. It was a little over a year ago I had the opportunity to be here for a Pathfinder Sabbath, and I enjoyed it very much, and it's glad to be, I'm glad to be back. I always feel that it is not just an honor but a responsibility when it comes to delivering the Word of God. So I just cannot speak to you before uh, addressing the Lord. So would you just join me in a moment? Father in heaven, we are here on your Sabbath day. We are here because you have loved us with that amazing love you promised in the prophet Jeremiah's writings. We are here because you have drawn us here to worship you in spirit and truth. And Lord, this morning as I am here at this pulpit, you have seen fit to allow me to open your word and deliver a message from you. Lord, I want nothing of me to be heard or seen this morning, but may I merely be your voice speaking to your people the message of your word. May Jesus Christ be uplifted in every word and in every thought. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness and fill us with your spirit. We thank you in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. In growing up, there were some passages of Scripture that were somewhat trepidatious, they were fearful, they were the kinds of passages that made my young mind 
wonder how could I possibly be saved? Take your Bible this morning, turn to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. We're not going to deal with the entire sermon, but we are going to look at parts of this and add some supplemental text from other parts of the scripture. But we have an underlying theme this morning that you will be able to see in just a moment. But now you should have Matthew chapter 5. Turn to verse 17. We're going to look at a paragraph here. Do not think, this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, first of all, when Jesus is speaking here, and he speaks about the law and the prophets, the law was a division of the scripture. It was the Torah, what we think of as the Pentateuch. And whenever you hear the word law, many of us, especially those of us who are raised in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, when we hear law, we are thinking about what? Someone just speak it out. Ten Commandments. That's right. However, to the Jewish mind, and therefore to the mind of Jesus, this is not the totality of Torah. This is not all that is law. Because, as you heard in the children's story this morning, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and your neighbor as yourself, this is also Torah. And so are the Ten Commandments. And so also are the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. But it is also the totality of Scripture that the people of God had at that time. And, believe it or not, if you take your Bible, it is also Torah. Although Jews may not agree with you in that. Torah most specifically means instruction. What has the Almighty taught us? And so if the Lord has said it, it is Torah. Okay? So Jesus says, I'm not come to do away with the instruction of the Lord. Not the law of Moses, not the love of the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. I'm not come to do away with these things. I'm come to make them full. To give you a better understanding and a more complete understanding. Verse 18, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear... Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, by, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. It's not going to go away. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It is the Word of God. And even if this earth should pass away, at some point in the distant future, you know what? The Word of God will endure. The instruction of the Lord, because the instruction of the Lord is from his character. It is the essence of God. Now, folks, if I were to ask you a question about what is the primary attribute or characteristic of God, if I said God is... 
love. And therefore, the character of God, the instruction that comes from his character, is always going to be loving. Always. So when God says that the law is not going to pass away, nothing is going to change, God has been, is now, and ever shall be a God of love. A God who speaks to his people and a God who wants his children to grow in his likeness. Now, as we go on in that passage, um, it says, verse 19, here's where it gets to be a little fearful. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't mean they're in the kingdom of heaven as the kingdom of heaven speaks of them. They are the least. These are the people who deny what? If they're denying the commandments, they're denying the law, they are denying the Torah, the instruction, the character of God. Do you see how when we understand what a passage means, the, the understanding just blossoms and grows? If we disregard the instruction of God, we're saying no to the character of God. And if there's anything that can disqualify us from the presence of God, it's saying, we don't like the way you do things around here. When we begin to say to God, my will is more important than yours, my understanding is what is really important here, Lord, we have a spirit of anti-Christ, anti-God, and it cannot continue. Now go down to verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Our character, our righteousness must be better than the Pharisees or will not get into heaven. Now you have, I'm sure, if you've been around Adventist churches for very long or any church that teaches stories from the New Testament, you know about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the strictest, strictest order of leaders in the Jewish community. In fact, it was like a denomination of Judaism. That's the way I like to think of groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're all Jewish believers, but some are practicing a very strict and a very orderly and a very precise behavior, and the Sadducees were not quite so. They didn't accept all of scripture as being inspired by God. Moses, yes, they'll take those five books of Moses, but David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, no, we don't bother with them. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees were like denominations within Judaism. But here's the point. The Sadducees wanted so very hard to be perfect 
in their obedience to the law, they created laws on how to keep the law. They had a list of 39 different activities that should you do them on the Sabbath day, you were breaking the Sabbath. The Lord found it very concise to say that in it thou shalt not do any work. But the Pharisees said, what is work? So if you tie a knot, that's work. You're breaking the Sabbath. If you untie a knot, that's work. You're breaking the Sabbath. If you take two sticks and pile them on top of each other, you're breaking the Sabbath. If you walk more than a fifth of a mile by our standard, you're breaking the Sabbath. They tried very, very hard to keep the law so that they would be righteous. Most of us today think, boy, I must have been miserable. You'd have to think of, you know, there are some Jews today who will not turn on the lights in their home on the Sabbath day. They will not turn up the furnace if it gets cold. Now, they can have uh, a Goya, a Gentile, come and do that work for them, even though I believe the fourth commandment says, not even the stranger in your house, but nevertheless, they would say, we cannot do any of these things because it would be violating the law, and therefore, we will not do them because we will be righteous. And yet, what did we just read, verse 20? that Jesus said about our righteousness. We must be how much, how much more righteous? We must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the strictest sect in all of Judaism. Or what? Not going to be in heaven. Later, at the end of this chapter, the very last verse of chapter 5, Matthew, verse 48, Jesus says, what are the first two words? Be perfect, Be perfect therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The command of Jesus is, you must be as perfect as the Almighty. I heard a couple of amens, but you know what? That scared me. <laughs> I mean, that scared me a lot because I know I'm not perfect. I have never been perfect. In fact, in my home church, I was known for the little boy who couldn't keep his mouth shut, who used to crawl under the pews during service, used to play with the bottoms of people's shoes from the pew in front of me during the prayer with a start like that it's pretty obvious to this mind that I'm never going to be perfect throughout school I was continually being disciplined for mostly talking I wrote more times than I can even count I must not talk <laughs> I got in trouble for doing 
crazy things when I went to academy. They used to, at my school, if you got into trouble, you would dig a hole six feet wide, six feet long, and six feet deep. And then when you were finished, you would fill that hole. But when I got in trouble, I got in trouble by the boys' dean who wanted us to do something a little bit more valuable than that. By the way, what did I get in trouble for? I was out on the wrong walk time on Sabbath afternoon. Boys got a certain time, girls got a certain time. I wasn't even with a girl, I was just out on the wrong time. We had to dig, instead of a six by six by six, we dug a six by 12 by two. Now, why? Why this longer, shallower place? We then had to take a wheelbarrow, go down to what used to be the dairy farm, find some of that rich cow manure, bring it back, spread it out in that ditch, and then come back and fill it in with dirt because the dean was going to have a garden. I will tell you, I was diligent in bringing back the manure because he had a very lush garden in my plot. But I am not perfect. To this day, I am not perfect. I'm not even as perfect as those Pharisees. So what am I going to do? How am I ever going to enter into a relationship with God and live with him forever. Well, we dealt with that command to be perfect at the, in the last paragraph of chapter 5. So let's go to the beginning of that paragraph, shall we? Let's take a look at that command in its context. Jesus didn't just say that void of any contextual connection. He said it in succession of a lot of other teachings that he was exploring in the Sermon on the Mount. He was saying, well, you know, you, you believe in the commandment, you shouldn't kill. Well, I'm telling you, you shouldn't even hate. He said, you've heard the commandment, you should not commit adultery, but Jesus says, you shouldn't even lust. Now, I know that even in Adventist churches, that's a commandment that a great many, if not every one of us, has trouble with from time to time. He said, um, you have heard from the code of Hammurabi, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I'm telling you, don't pay back at all. Jesus says, if you are conscripted to carry a soldier's burden for a certain distance, double it. Verse 23. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How do we love our enemies? Where in the world does that come from? 
they wouldn't be enemies if they were lovable. You know that you have got people in your sphere of life that just seemed that's their spiritual gift and not a holy spiritual gift. It's their spiritual gift to be nasty. Maybe it's a neighbor. We have a neighbor who just goes out of his way to be difficult. Maybe it's somebody you work with. I've encountered that. Maybe it's someone here in the church that just kind of like stroke your shoulder or your arm with rough sandpaper. They just grit on you. Jesus says, these are the people you're supposed to love. How can we do that? That seems like such an impossible thing. Jesus, what do you mean? Let's go to uh, chapter 7 of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to look at uh, verse 15 and 16. may seem like it's going in another direction, but it's not. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, they're fierce wolves. By their fruits, you will recognize them. False prophets. Now, we're, we're used to looking at this concept of false prophets. There are some who are going to teach us that the Sabbath has been done away with, or they're going to teach us that Jesus has come in the flesh and he's out in the desert somewhere. We're familiar with this concept of false prophets. But Jesus says that some of these false prophets will be in our midst. Could it be that someone who teaches or preaches in a Seventh-day Adventist church could be a false prophet. Patient with me. Don't, don't shut me off yet. I'm not saying this about anyone in particular because when I'm talking, I guess I'm talking to me. Could I be a false prophet? What is the role of a prophet? It's not so much to predict the future. That happens occasionally to establish the, the veracity or the truthfulness of what that prophet is saying on God's behalf. The prophet's primary goal is to speak a message that God gives and to speak it truthfully. If you are speaking the message of God, but putting your own spin on it, you're a false prophet. Now, I had a, a first elder in the church many years ago who tried to convince me that pastors were like prophets. I didn't want to be convinced. He said, well, what did you have to do to get to be a pastor? Well, I had to go to seminary and be trained. 
And he said, well, was there training in biblical times? I said, well, yeah, like in the time of Elisha, weren't there something called the school of the prophets? And I said, well, yeah. And he said, well, what did you call the people who graduated from the schools of the prophets? I knew what he wanted me to say. I didn't want to say it. So I told him, they graduated from the school of the prophets. They're alumni. (laughs) I don't claim to be a prophet of the Lord, but teaching and preaching is a prophetic work because you are instructing people as to what the Lord says. And if you say it in a way that deceives or misleads, then you must be a false prophet. Now, so far, I'm giving you all of the things that make me worry. Okay? I'm going to show you the good news in just a moment, so don't fall asleep. Don't give up on me. Don't go out and say, boy, don't ever get that guy back here again. What did Jesus say about the righteousness we must have with regard to the Pharisees? We have to be more righteous than the Pharisees. We're the Pharisees trying exceedingly hard to follow the instruction of the Lord. And were they not teaching the people, this is what you do. On the Sabbath, there are 39 things you cannot do because that's work. You'll be breaking the Sabbath. They were trying to teach people that it is all about what? Can you think of a word that this would fit? Behavior? Works? If... I were able, I believe that is grammatically correct because it's a condition contrary to fact, right? You don't say if I was, you say if I were because it's one of those, what, third class conditional sentences. There's an English teacher here, I'm in trouble. But I believe that's correct. If I were able to perfectly keep the law, would I be perfect? No. And you know, it was this kind of dilemma that had Martin Luther giving up. He says, well, I guess I'm just fuel for the fire of hell. No, he wasn't. And he began to understand that it is not our righteousness. It is not our holiness. It is not our behavior that makes us worthy of heaven. I will never be perfect, but I know someone who is. That someone is my personal representative, my personal stand-in. In Hebrew terminology, he is my goel. He is my redeemer. The one who takes the mess that I'm in, pays the price, and exalts me to the highest place imaginable. That someone is Jesus. And he's not here just for me. He's here for you. 
Now that scripture text that we looked at this morning from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, verse 3. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's just one of the most astounding verses to me. It has totally transformed my life because I used to be taught by someone who was unwittingly and unwillingly a false teacher. I used to believe that if I did something wrong, the angels of God would turn away and cry, but leave me alone. I hope you weren't taught that. If you were, listen, it's not true. God loves you at every moment of every day. God didn't say, now listen, here's the plan. I'm going to give you some probationary time. During this time, I want you to clean up your act. And I want you to achieve about a 97% perfection. And then Jesus will come in and pick up the rest. How many think that that's true? That you're going to be like maybe 97% perfect. Jesus is going to make up the rest. It's going to be the only perfection that I have is my desire to be with Jesus. And Jesus does everything else. I can never achieve righteousness. It is always 100% Jesus. Now God's motivation in this is that he loves us. For about 14 months until just recently, I was working as a chaplain at Glendale Adventist Medical Center, and one of the departments that I had was maternity. Man, if there's a cooler place in the world to work than in maternity, I'm, I haven't found it yet. That's an amazing experience because you find these young, usually young, couples. Many of the times they have their very first baby. And I've seen guys that look like they could just chew me up and spit me out. Hulking big guys. Some of them with, you know, so much tattoos on them, you wonder, is there any part of their flesh that isn't covered? Tough looking guys. And they're just all melted butter as they're holding this little girl or little boy in their arms. Because when you become a parent, you get the idea of what love is. Whew. Man, it's happened to me twice, and praise God for both times. Because I will never get over that. That love that you instantly feel. Now, I know you ladies had nine months of feeling them inside and rubbing your belly. All of this stuff, I know it's different for you. I'll never understand it completely. But for guys, when that little one is there in your arms, you're hooked. And you're not going to slip off the hook. They've got you by the heart. Always. And God gave birth, created, kissed life into the human family. And God loves us stronger than any parent 
can love. And God's love is everlasting. He doesn't say, Boy, will you ever get potty trained, you naughty kid. I've changed more diapers than I'm ever going to put up with. You're done. You're not on the potty and doing it perfectly from this moment on. I'm done with you. Good luck, you almost two-year-old. God doesn't do that. Why do we think that God is going to do that to us if we have troubles? We get into troubles later in life that are a whole lot worse than messy diapers. But God loves us with such an amazing love that he seeks after us. Go to the end of, or almost to the end of the New Testament, to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. Now, once God has sought after us and found us, he shows us what his character is like. Verse 7, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, and whoever does not love does not know God Because God is love. If we behold God, we will love him in return. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. I know some translations say the sons of God. God has daughters too. It's tatechnatutheu, the children of God. Not huias, not sons. It's children. God loves us, and if we behold that, if we see how much God loves us, we will love him in return. If you take time to read the description of the ministry of Jesus, And of the crucifixion of Jesus. And you allow your mind to wrap itself around the concept that Jesus did that exclusively for you. It'll reach your heart. It's so much easier to think that Jesus did it for everybody. But you see, Jesus loves every one of us uniquely. If you have multiple children in your home, you don't say, well, I love all the kids. You love each one in a unique way. You love them all. But each one is special and unique. Jesus came to this world to live and to suffer and to be betrayed and to be crucified because he loves you. I don't care how tough you are. If you think about someone suffering and dying for you, it ought to be able to penetrate through that hard shell. And as we behold God, we love him in return. 
Now I want you to look at a promise that God made with his people back in Jeremiah. Same chapter we looked at earlier, Jeremiah chapter 31, only we're not going to be looking at the beginning of the chapter this time, we're going to be looking toward the end. Jeremiah chapter 31, and we're going to uh, pick it up at verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Here we go. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. We are spiritual Israel, you know that. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. That is a redemptive act that God did for the people in those days, like the redemptive act that he did for us through Jesus. Because they, the people who had been redeemed, when you read that, don't think about ancient Israel. Think about you. You are the person that Christ redeemed because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. God speaks of his love to be as intimate and as strong as a marriage relationship. In a little over a week, my wife and I will have been married 40 years. Twice as long as I was single. But I don't ever want to experience life without her. She is... So dear to me, it's like myself. That's the way God feels about you. You are as dear to him as himself, only more so. Verse 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law, Torah, instruction, character. I will put my character in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. God promises us that if we will trust him and we will seek him he will put his Torah, his instruction, his character, his law into our minds. Now for many of us that's the easy part. Getting it in the mind. I know these things. I know what is right. I know what is wrong. I know what is the thing that I should do. But he also says he's going to write it where? It's going to change your motives. Oh, change my motives? How does he do that? Because if we behold his love, and he says to us, love your enemies. I can't do that. I have had people who have treated me extreme, extremely poorly and have treated my wife extremely poorly. And you know what? We didn't feel like forgiving. We didn't feel like loving. But you know what? 
we took it to God and said, you know, if you tell me this is what you want, then you are going to have to change me so that it will happen. And I'll tell you, some of those hurts didn't go away immediately. But I began doing the second part of that, praying for the people who had hurt us. By the way, it's not all in one place, a couple of things over time. Not specific, don't try and figure out who's he talking about. I'm just saying that when you're praying for your enemies and telling God it's okay for him to change your heart, you know what happens? God changes your heart. God starts making you care about those rascals or stinkers or whatever you want to call them. And rather than being angry with them, or holding resentment against them, God comes in and does some cleaning up in this space and this space. And suddenly, if anything, I'm sorry that they are such unhappy people that their only joy comes in making other people feel unhappy. I don't have resentment or anger toward those people anymore. It's not me. I didn't want to do it. God came in and did it. When God says through Jesus, be perfect, we don't want to be. (laughs) We don't want to be. But if we behold the love of God and we say to him, well, you know, if this is what you want, change me. I'll try not to interfere too much, but I interfere. I have to keep going back and saying, Lord, I don't understand why you love me so much, but make my heart like yours. Change me. And he does. Every time. When it comes to obeying the law, let's go to Matthew chapter 22. By the way, we're almost done. If you're a clock watcher, I see the clock there. I know. Looks like I have four or five minutes. I'll try to finish up. Matthew chapter 22. When Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment in the law, verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. They are the principles upon which every other law Every other bit of instruction hangs. Love. Because the 
character of God is love. And if we are to be his children, we must let that love into our hearts. I didn't plan to share this with you, but God put it on my heart, so I'm going to do this. You may know, some of you who read the writings of Ellen White, that she once wrote, when the character of our Savior is perfectly reproduced in the hearts of his children, Jesus will come. Paraphrase. That may not be verbatim, but that's pretty close. You'll recognize it if you've read it before. The character of God perfectly reproduced. What is the character of God? I think for too long we have tried to be Pharisees. Jesus says they're not good enough. You cannot be good enough by working at keeping the law. You obtain perfection from a perfect God by taking into your mind and into your heart his character, which is love. And you must love others in return. Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. We want to look at verses 8 through 10. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatsoever other commandments there may be, that means everything else, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Let's just use some of the illustrations here. Then I commit adultery. If you love your spouse with the deepest and most enduring love that you are capable of possessing, adultery is going to be so far from your mind that it's more fanciful than a fairy tale. If you love another person with all the love that God places in your heart, you're not going to kill them. Do you see what he's saying? It's not saying that those other things are inconsequential. They are there to make us aware that something is wrong. If you have Christ in your life, you know what? Love and joy and peace and gentleness and meekness and kindness, all of those things flow out of your life because God's in you. If God's not in you, what comes out? Malice, envy, strife, all of this other stuff. Because (coughs) when you're allowing Christ in your heart and mind, he's working in you. You are perfect. When you kick him out, 
Well, the other side takes over. There is no in-between. So when we realize, when we look at the law, boy, I'm not doing that right. We don't say, pull up those bootstraps. We say, Jesus, I've been selfish again. I've taken you out of my life. It's all about love. In the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, he was talking to his disciples. And he says, John chapter 13, he says, I'm, I'm, it's a new commandment I'm giving you. And he says to them, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus doesn't say, people will know you're my disciples if you talk about my second coming. Is that important? Absolutely. Can't wait. Jesus didn't say, people will know you're my disciples if you carry your Bible and go to church on the seventh day of the week. Important. It's great. I love it. I go. But that's not what makes me a disciple of Jesus. What makes me a disciple of Jesus is asking for and always receiving the character of God, which is love. And this explains that very, very strange passage that we find um, ah, I strayed from my notes. I can't find the passage here. That we find uh, where Jesus is talking to people when he comes to receive his children. And there are some who cry out to him, Lord! Lord! Jesus says, I'm sorry, I don't know you. And they said, well, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. and We did miracles. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, I never knew you. Here is the danger for Seventh-day Adventist Christians and people who love the Lord. If you think that your salvation is based on your behavior, you could be in that crowd saying, Lord, I was at Sam school every week. I gave my tithes and offerings. Sent my kids to church school. I handed out literature. I attended evangelistic meetings. I even held a Daniel seminar. The only thing that a person who does those things can possibly make the Lord say, I never knew you, 
is if we did not accept his character, his heart. The most important thing in life is to love God supremely. And the second most important thing in life is to love others as Christ loves me. Now, I purposely said, as Christ loves me, Jesus told the disciples that, John 13. But sometimes we want to treat up, love your neighbor as yourself. Some of us obviously don't love ourselves very much by the way we treat our neighbors. So if we always say, love others as Christ loves me, I'm going to have it right. Because I have messed up again and again and again. And what makes me keeping back, keep coming back to Jesus is a simple fact that every time I come back, Jesus places his arms around me, forgives me, and says, I still love you, boy. I still love you. And he'll say that to you ladies, too. I still love you, girl. I still love you. Thanks for coming back. It's about love. When you love, obedience is easy. It's easy. When you try to do it without love, it's impossible. So what do we do? We don't have that love yet. There is an infinite source of love. Waiting... You don't even have to have his text number. All you have to do is say, Lord, please. And he will pour that love into your life. And when you are filled with the love of God, with that love comes the perfection of Jesus Christ. When you say, Lord, it's not about me, it's about you. I want you in my life. He comes. And when he comes, he fills. And when he fills, you are perfect. So I don't want to hear the Lord say, I never knew you. When Jesus comes, I want to look at that cloud as it's coming and say, this is my God. I have waited for him, and he has saved me. This is my Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So my prayer for you this day is that you will cease from seeking to be perfect, and that you will ask God to come into your life, fill you with his character and his perfection, and you will be perfect. What do you think about that? Is that a good idea? Did we not get these points out of the scriptures? This has relieved such a burden from my heart. 
I don't have to do all of these things. Christ will do them if I just invite him in with no limits. Come in to my heart. Into my heart. Into my heart. Come into my heart. Lord Jesus, come in today, come in to stay, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Father in heaven, thank you for being the way, the truth, the life the love, the perfection, the everything that I need, God. Forgive me for thinking that I could do this on my own. Never. Nor do I want to do it on my own. I want you in my life. I want you making me happy. I want you filling my heart to overflowing with joy and happiness. Lord, give that love and that joy and that peace to everyone in the sound of my voice. Fill us with your love and make us perfect. We pray in the name of our perfect Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.